Section 2 of The Chorus Girl and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Benjamin Lafferty. The Chorus Girl and Other Stories by Anton Chekhov. Translated by Constance Garnett. Section 2. Vorotchka. Ivan Alexeyevich Ognev remembers how on that August evening he opened the glass door with a rattle and went out onto the veranda. He was wearing a light Inverness cape and a wide-brimmed straw hat, the very one that was lying with his top boots in the dust under his bed. In one hand he had a big bundle of books and notebooks, in the other a thick knotted stick. Behind the door, holding the lamp to show the way, stood the master of the house, Kuznetsov, a bald old man with a long gray beard and a snow-white peaked jacket. The old man was smiling cordially and nodding his head. "'Good-bye, old fellow,' said Ognev. Kuznetsov put the lamp on the little table and went out onto the veranda. Two long, narrow shadows moved down the steps toward the flower-beds, swayed to and fro, and leaned their heads on the trunks of the lime-trees. "'Good-bye, and once more thank you, my dear fellow,' said Ivan Alexeyevich. Thank you for your welcome, for your kindness, for your affection. I shall never forget your hospitality as long as I live. You are so good, and your daughter is so good, and everyone here is so kind, so good-humored and friendly. Such a splendid set of people that I don't know how to say what I feel. From excess of feeling, and under the influence of the homemade wine he had just drunk, Ognev talked in a singing voice like a divinity student and was so touched that he expressed his feelings not so much by words as by the blinking of his eyes and the twitching of his shoulders. Kuznetsov had also drunk a good deal, and was touched, craned forward to the young man and kissed him. "'I've grown as fond of you as if I were a dog,' Ognev went on. "'I've been turning up here almost every day. I've stayed the night a dozen times. It's dreadful to think of all the homemade wine I've drunk.' Without you, I should have been busy here over my statistics till October. I shall put in my preface. I think it my duty to express my gratitude to the president of the district, Zemstvo of N., Kuznetsov, for his kind cooperation. There is a brilliant future before statistics. My humble respects to Vera Gavrilovna, and tell the doctors, both the lawyers and your secretary, that I shall never forget their help. And now, old fellow... Let us embrace one another and kiss for the last time. Ognev, limp with emotion, kissed the old man once more and began going down the steps. On the last step he looked round and asked, Shall we meet again some day? God knows, said the old man. Most likely not. Yes, that's true. Nothing will tempt you to Petersburg, and I am never likely to turn up in this district again. Well, goodbye. You had better leave the books behind. Kuznetsov called after him. "'You don't want to drag such a weight with you. I would send them by a servant tomorrow.' But Ognev was rapidly walking away from the house and was not listening. His heart, warmed by the wine, was brimming over with good humor, friendliness, and sadness. He walked along thinking how frequently one met with good people, and what a pity it was that nothing was left of those meetings but memories. At times, one catches a glimpse of cranes on the horizon— and a faint gust of wind brings their plaintive, ecstatic cry, 
and a minute later, however greedily one scans the blue distance, one cannot see a speck nor catch a sound. And like that, people with their faces and their words flit through our lives and are drowned in the past, leaving nothing except faint traces in the memory. Having been in the end district from the early spring, and having been almost every day at the friendly Kuznetsovs, Ivan Alexeyevich had become as much at home with the old man, his daughter, and the servants as though they were his own people. He had grown familiar with the whole house to the smallest detail, with the cozy veranda, the windings of the avenues, the silhouettes of the trees over the kitchen and the bathhouse. But as soon as he was out of the gate, all this would be changed to memory, and would lose its meaning as reality forever. And in a year or two, all these dear images would grow as dim in his consciousness as stories he had read or things he had imagined. Nothing in life is so precious as people, Ognev thought in his emotion as he strode along the avenue to the gate. Nothing. It was warm and still in the garden. There was a scent of the mignonette, of the tobacco plants, and of the heliotrope, which were not yet over in the flower beds. The spaces between the bushes and the tree trunks were filled with the fine, soft mist, soaked through and through with moonlight, and, as Ognev long remembered, coils of mist that looked like phantoms, slowly but perceptibly, followed one another across the avenue. The moon stood high above the garden, and below it, transparent patches of mist were floating eastward. The whole world seemed to consist of nothing but black silhouettes and wandering white shadows. Ognev, seeing the mist on a moonlight August evening almost for the first time in his life, imagined he was seeing not nature, but a stage effect in which unskillful workmen trying to light up the garden with white bangle fire, hid behind the bushes and let off clouds of white smoke together with the light. When Ognev reached the garden gate, a dark shadow moved away from the low fence and came towards him. Vera Gavrilovna, he said, delighted. You here? And I have been looking everywhere for you, wanted to say goodbye. Goodbye. I am going away. So early? Why, it's only eleven o'clock. Yes, it's time I was off. I have a four-mile walk and then my packing. I must be up early tomorrow. Before Ognev stood Kuznetsov's daughter, Vera, a girl of one and twenty, as usual melancholy, carelessly dressed, and attractive. Girls who are dreamy and spend whole days lying down, lazily reading whatever they come across, who are bored and melancholy, are usually careless in their dress. To those of them who have been endowed by nature with taste and an instinct of beauty, the slight carelessness adds a special charm. When Ognev later on remembered her, he could not picture pretty Verochka, except in a full blouse which was crumpled in deep folds at the belt, and yet did not touch her waist. Without her hair done up high, and a curl that had come loose from it on her forehead, without the knitted red shawl with ball fringe at the edge, which hung disconsolately on Vera's shoulders in the evenings, like a flag on a windless day, and in the daytime lay about, crushed up, in the hall near the men's hats or on a box in the dining room, where the old cat did not hesitate to sleep on it. This shawl and the folds of her blouse suggested a feeling of freedom and laziness, of good nature and sitting at home. Perhaps because Vera attracted Ognev, he saw in every frill and button something warm, naive, cozy, something nice and poetical, 
just what is lacking in cold, insincere women that have no instinct for beauty. Vorotchka had a good figure, a regular profile, and beautiful curly hair. Ognev, who had seen few women in his life, thought her a beauty. "'I am going away,' he said, as he took leave of her at the gate. "'Don't remember evil against me. Thank you for everything.' In the same singing divinity student's voice in which he had talked to her father, with the same blinking and twitching of his shoulders, he began thanking Vera for her hospitality, kindness, and friendliness. "'I've written about you in every letter to my mother,' he said. "'If everyone were like you and your dad, what a jolly place the world would be. You were such a splendid set of people, all such genuine, friendly people with no nonsense about you.' "'Where are you going to now?' asked Vera. "'I am going now to my mother's at Oriel. "'I shall be a fortnight with her, and then back to Petersburg and work.' "'And then?' "'And then I shall work all winter, and in the spring go somewhere into the provinces again to collect material. "'Well, be happy. Live a hundred years. Don't remember evil against me. "'We shall not see each other again.' Ognev stooped down and kissed Vera's hand. Then, in silent emotion, he straightened his cape, shifted his bundle of books to a more comfortable position, paused, and said, What a lot of mist! Yes. Have you left anything behind? No, I don't think so. For some seconds Ognev stood in silence. Then he moved clumsily toward the gate and went out of the garden. Stay. I'll see you as far as our wood said Vera, following him out. They walked along the road. Now the trees did not obscure the view, and one could see the sky in the distance. As though covered with a veil, all nature was hidden in a transparent, colorless haze through which her beauty peeped gaily. Where the mist was thicker and whiter, it lay heaped unevenly about the stones, stalks, and bushes, or drifted in coils over the road, clung close to the earth and seemed trying not to conceal the view. Through the haze they could see all the road as far as the wood, with dark ditches at the sides and tiny bushes which grew in the ditches and caught the straying wisps of mist. Half a mile from the gate they saw the dark patch of Kuznetsov's wood. Why has she come with me? I shall have to see her back, thought Ognev. But looking at her profile he gave a friendly smile and said, One doesn't want to go away in such lovely weather. It's quite a romantic evening with the moon the stillness, and all the etceteras. Do you know, Vera Gavrilovna, here I have lived twenty-nine years in the world, and never had a romance, no romantic episode in my whole life, so that I only know by hearsay of rendezvous, avenues of sighs and kisses. It's not normal in town when one sits in one's lodgings. One does not notice the blank. But here in the fresh air one feels it. One resents it. Why is it? I don't know. I suppose I've never had time, or perhaps it was I have never met a woman who— In fact, I have very few acquaintances and never go anywhere. For some three hundred paces the young people walked on in silence. Ognev kept glancing at Vorotchka's bare head and shawl, and days of spring and summer rose to his mind one after another. It had been a period when far from his grey Petersburg lodgings, enjoying the friendly warmth of kind people, nature— and the work he loved. He had not had time to notice how the sunsets followed the glow of dawn, and how, one after another, foretelling the end of the summer, 
First the nightingale ceased singing, then the quail, then a little later the landrail. The days slipped by unnoticed, so that life must have been happy and easy. He began calling aloud how reluctantly he, poor and accustomed to change of scene and society, had come at the end of April to the end district, where he had expected dreariness, loneliness, and indifference to statistics, which he considered was now the foremost among the sciences. When he arrived on an April morning at the little town of N, he had put up at the inn kept by Ryabuin, the old believer, where for twenty kopecks a day they had given him a light, clean room on condition that he should not smoke indoors. After resting and finding who was the president of the district Zemstvo, he had set off at once on foot to Kuznetsov. He had to walk three miles through lush meadows and young copses. Larks were hovering in the clouds, filling the air with silvery notes, and rooks flapping their wings with sedate dignity floated over the green cornland. Good heavens, Ognev had thought in wonder, can it be that there's always air like this to breathe here, or is this scent only today, in honor of my coming? Expecting a cold, business-like reception, he went into Kuznetsov's diffidently, looking up from under his eyebrows and shyly pulling his beard. At first Kuznetsov wrinkled up his brows and could not understand what use the Zemstvo could be to the young man and his statistics, but when the latter explained at length what was material for statistics and how such material was collected, Kuznetsov brightened, smiled, and with childish curiosity began looking at his notebooks. On the evening of the same day Ivan Alexeyevich was already sitting at supper with the Kuznetsovs was rapidly becoming exhilarated by their strong homemade wine, and looking at the calm faces and lazy movements of his new acquaintances, felt all over that sweet, drowsy indolence which makes one want to sleep and stretch and smile. While his new acquaintances looked at him good-naturedly, and asked him whether his father and mother were living, how much he earned a month, how often he went to the theater. Ognev recalled his expeditions about the neighborhood, the picnics, the fishing parties, the visit of the whole party to the convent to see the mother superior Marfa, who had given each of the visitors a bead purse. He recalled the hot, endless, typically Russian arguments in which the opponents, spluttering and banging the table with their fists, misunderstand and interrupt one another, unconsciously contradict themselves at every phrase, continually change the subject, and after arguing for two or three hours, laugh and say, Goodness knows what we have been arguing about, beginning with one thing and going on to another. And do you remember how the doctor and you and I rode to Shestovo? said Ivan Alexeyevich to Vera as they reached the copse. It was there that the crazy saint met us. I gave him a five-kopeck piece, and he crossed himself three times and flung it into the rye. Good heavens! I am carrying away such a mass of memories that if I could gather them together into a whole it would make a good nugget of gold. I don't understand why clever, perceptive people crowd into Petersburg and Moscow and don't come here. Is there more truth and freedom in the Nevsky and in the big damp houses than here? Really, the idea of artists, scientific men and journalists all living crowded together in furnished rooms has always seemed to me a mistake. Twenty paces from the copse the road was crossed by a small narrow bridge with posts at the corners, which had always served as a resting place for the Kuznetsovs and their guests on their evening walks. From there those who liked could mimic the forest echo, and one could see the road vanish in the dark woodland track. "'Well, here is the bridge,' said Ognev, 
Here you must turn back. Vera stopped and drew a breath. Let us sit down, she said, sitting down on one of the posts. People generally sit down when they say goodbye before starting on a journey. Ognev settled himself beside her on his bundle of books and went on talking. She was breathless from the walk and was looking not at Ivan Alexeyevich but away into the distance so that he could not see her face. And what if we meet in ten years' time, he said. What shall we be like then? You will be by then the respectable mother of a family, and I shall be the offer of some weighty statistical work of no use to anyone, as thick as forty thousand such works. We shall meet and think of old days. Now we are conscious of the present. It absorbs and excites us, but when we meet we shall not remember the day, nor the month, nor even the year in which we saw each other for the last time on this bridge. You will be changed, perhaps. Tell me, will you be different? Vera started and turned her face toward him. What? she asked. I asked you just now. Excuse me, I did not hear what you were saying. Only then Ognev noticed a change in Vera. She was pale, breathing fast, and the tremor in her breathing affected her hands and lips and head. And not one curl as usual, but two came loose and fell on her forehead. Evidently she avoided looking him in the face, and, trying to mask her emotion, at one moment fingered her collar, which seemed to be rasping her neck, at another pulled at her red shawl from one shoulder to the other. I'm afraid you are cold, said Ognev. It's not at all wise to sit in the mist. Let me see you back, Nachhaus. Vera sat mute. What is the matter? asked Ognev, with a smile. You sit silent and don't answer my questions. Are you cross, or don't you feel well? Vera pressed the palm of her hand to the cheek nearest to Ognev, and then abruptly jerked it away. An awful position, she murmured, with a look of pain on her face. Awful. How is it awful? asked Otniev, shrugging his shoulders and not concealing his surprise. What's the matter? Still breathing hard and twitching her shoulders, Vera turned back to him, looked at the sky for a half-minute, and said, There is something I must say to you, Ivan Alexeyevich. I am listening. It may seem strange to you. You will be surprised, but I don't care. Ognev shrugged his shoulders once more and prepared himself to listen. You see, Verachka began, bowing her head and fingering a ball on the fringe of her shawl. You see, this is what I wanted to tell you. You'll think it strange and silly, but I can't bear it any longer. Vera's words died away in an indistinct mutter and were suddenly cut short by tears. The girl hid her face in her handkerchief bent lower than ever, and wept bitterly. Ivan Alexeyevich cleared his throat in confusion and looked about him hopelessly, at his wit's end, not knowing what to say or do. Being unused to the sight of tears, he felt his own eyes, too, beginning to smart. "'Well, what next?' he muttered helplessly. "'Vera Gavrilovna, what's this for? I should like to know. My dear girl, are you—are you ill?' Or has someone been nasty to you? Tell me. Perhaps I could, so to say, help you. When, trying to console her, he ventured cautiously to remove her hands from her face, 
She smiled at him through her tears and said, I love you. These words, so simple and ordinary, were uttered in an ordinary human language, but Ognev, in acute embarrassment, turned away from Vera and got up, while his confusion was followed by terror. The sad, warm, sentimental mood induced by leave-taking and the homemade wine suddenly vanished and gave place to an acute and unpleasant feeling of awkwardness. He felt an inward revulsion. He looked askance at Vera, and now that by declaring her love for him she had cast off the aloofness which so adds to a woman's charm, she seemed to him, as it were, shorter, plainer, more ordinary. What's the meaning of it? he thought with horror. But I... Do I love her or not? That's the question. And she breathed easily and freely now that the words and most difficult thing was said. She too got up, and looking at Ivan Alexeyevich straight in the face, began talking rapidly, warmly, irrepressibly. As a man suddenly panic-stricken cannot afterwards remember the succession of sounds accompanying the catastrophe that overwhelmed him, so Ognev cannot remember Vera's words and phrases. He can only recall the meaning of what she said, and the sensation her words evoked in him. He remembers her voice, which seemed stifled and husky with emotion, and the extraordinary music and passion of her intonation. Laughing, crying with tears glistening on her eyelashes, she told him that from the first day of their acquaintance he had struck her by his originality, his intelligence, his kind, intelligent eyes, by his work and objects in his life, that she loved him passionately, deeply, madly, that when coming into the house from the garden in the summer she saw his cape in the hall or heard his voice in the distance, she felt a cold shudder at her heart, a foreboding of happiness. Even his slightest jokes had made her laugh. In every figure in his notebooks she saw something extraordinarily wise and grand, his knotted stick seemed to her more beautiful than the trees. The cops and the wisps of mist and the black ditches at the side of the road seemed hushed listening to her, whilst something strange and unpleasant was passing in Ognev's heart. Telling him of her love, Vera was enchantingly beautiful. She spoke eloquently and passionately, but he felt neither pleasure nor gladness as he would have liked to. He felt nothing but compassion for Vera, pity and regret that a good girl should be distressed on his account. Whether he was affected by generalizations from reading, or by the insuperable habit of looking at things objectively, which so often hinders people from living, but Vera's ecstasies and suffering struck him as affected, not to be taken seriously, and at the same time rebellious feeling whispered to him, that all he was hearing and seeing now from the point of view of nature and personal happiness was more important than any statistics and books and truths. And he raged and blamed himself, though he did not understand exactly where he was in fault. To complete his embarrassment, he was absolutely at a loss what to say, and yet something he must say. To say bluntly, I don't love you, was beyond him, and he could not bring himself to say, Yes, because however much he rummaged in his heart, he could not find one spark of feeling in it. He was silent. And she, meanwhile, was saying that for her there was no greater happiness than to see him, 
to follow him wherever he liked this very moment, to be his wife and helper, and that if he went away from her she would die of misery. I cannot stay here, she said, wringing her hands. I am sick of the house and this wood and the air. I cannot bear the everlasting peace and aimless life. I can't endure our colorless pale people, who are all as like one another as two drops of water. They are all good-natured and warm-hearted people because they are all well-fed and know nothing of struggle or suffering. I want to be in those big, damp houses where people suffer, embittered by work and need. And this, too, seemed to Ognev affected and not to be taken seriously. When Vera had finished, he still did not know what to say, but it was impossible to be silent, and he muttered, Vera Gavrilovna, I am very grateful to you, though I feel I have done nothing to deserve such feeling on your part. Besides, as an honest man, I have to tell you that happiness depends on equality, that is, when both parties are equally in love. But he was immediately ashamed of his mutterings and ceased. He felt that his face at that moment looked stupid, guilty, blank, that it was strained and affected. Vera must have been able to read the truth on his countenance, for she suddenly became grave, turned pale, and bent her head. "'You must forgive me,' Ognev muttered, not able to endure the silence. "'I respect you so much that it, it pains me.' Vera turned sharply and walked rapidly homewards. Ognev followed her. "'No, don't,' said Vera, with a wave of her hand. "'Don't come. I can go alone.' "'Oh, yes, I must see you home anyway.' Whatever Ognev said, it all to the last word struck him as loathsome and flat. The feeling of guilt grew greater at every step. He raged inwardly, clenched his fists, and cursed at coldness and his stupidity with women. Trying to stir his feelings, he looked at Verochka's beautiful figure, at her hair and the traces of her little feet on the dusty road. He remembered her words and her tears, but all that only touched his heart and did not quicken his pulse. Ach, one can't force oneself to love, he assured himself. And at the same time, he thought, but shall I ever fall in love without? I am nearly thirty. I have never met anyone better than Vera, and I never shall. Oh, this premature old age, old age at thirty. Vera walked on in front more and more rapidly, without looking back at him or raising her head. It seemed to him that sorrow had made her thinner and narrower in the shoulders. I can't imagine what's going on in her heart now, he thought, looking back at her. She must be ready to die with shame and mortification. My God, there's so much life, poetry, and meaning in it that it would move a stone, and I... I am stupid and absurd. At the gate, Vera stole a glance at him, and, shrugging and wrapping her shawl round her, walked rapidly away down the avenue. Ivan Alexeyevich was left alone. Going back to the copse, he walked slowly, continually standing still, and looking round at the gate with an expression in his whole figure that suggested that he could not believe his own memory. He looked for Vera's footprints on the road, and could not believe that the girl who had so attracted him had just declared her love, and that he had so clumsily and bluntly refused her. 
For the first time in his life it was his lot to learn by experience how little that a man does depends on his own will, and to suffer in his own person the feelings of a decent, kindly man who has against his will caused his neighbor cruel, undeserved anguish. His conscience tormented him, and when Vera disappeared he felt as though he had lost something very precious, something very near and dear, which he could never find again. He felt that with Vera a part of his youth had slipped away from him, and that the moments which he had passed through so fruitlessly would never be repeated. When he reached the bridge he stopped and sank into thought. He wanted to discover the reason of his strange coldness. That it was due to something within him and not outside himself was clear to him. He frankly acknowledged to himself that it was not the intellectual coldness of which clever people so often boast not the coldness of a conceited fool, but simply impotence of soul, incapacity for being moved by beauty, premature old age brought on by education, his casual existence, struggling for a livelihood, his homeless life in lodgings. From the bridge he walked slowly, as it were reluctantly, into the wood. Here, where in the dense black darkness glaring patches of moonlight gleamed here and there, where he felt nothing except his thoughts. He longed passionately to regain what he had lost. And Ivan Alexeyitch remembers that he went back again, urging himself on with his memories, forcing himself to picture Vera. He strode rapidly towards the garden. There was no mist by then along the road or in the garden, and the bright moon looked down from the sky as though it had just been washed. Only the eastern sky was dark and misty. Ognev remembers his cautious steps, the dark windows, the heavy scent of heliotrope and mignonette. His old friend Caro, wagging his tail amicably, came up to him and sniffed his hand. This was the one living creature who saw him walk two or three times round the house, stand near Vera's dark window, and with a deep sigh and a wave of his hand, walk out of the garden. An hour later he was in the town, and, worn out and exhausted, leaned his body and hot face against the gatepost of the inn as he knocked on the gate. Somewhere in the town a dog barked sleepily, and as though in response to his knock, someone clanged the hour on an iron plate near the church. "'You prowl about at night,' grumbled his host, the old believer, opening the door to him in a long nightgown like a woman's. "'You had better be saying your prayers instead of prowling about.' When Ivan Alexeyitch reached his room, he sank on the bed and gazed a long, long time at the light. Then he tossed his head and began packing. End of Section 2 Vorachka Recording by Benjamin Lafferty